I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, America's obsession with home ownership. I was seriously shocked. The, there was a lot of ire, actually. I got a lot of phone calls, a lot anonymous. Um, one man called me dangerous for suggesting such a thing. This is Kelly Phillips Herb. I'm a tax attorney at White & Williams in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I also write a tax column for Forbes, and I'm known around the web as Tax Girl. And the thing that got people so mad was an article she wrote. It was 11 reasons why I never want to own a house again. I think that people felt like it was challenging the assumptions they had always been taught. I cut my teeth in estate planning in the tax world, and I understand that there are assumptions that wealth is tied to real estate. Um, but also I'm seeing kind of the flip side of how real estate can tie you to one place. It can make you cash poor. So I think it was, you know, a lot of people were angry because I was suggesting that the way that they thought that they could build wealth wasn't valid. And that wasn't what I was saying at all. Owning a home is the American dream. It's a symbol of successful adulthood. I mean, why pay rent to someone else when you can be building equity for yourself, right? Well, this season on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions. As a general rule, homeownership is the way to build wealth in the United States. But many countries don't have nearly the same level of homeownership. Why is owning a home so central to American ideals? And is it really accessible to everyone who works hard and plays their cards right? We're going to answer both of those questions today. But let's start with the consequences of this foundational assumption that buying is always better than renting. I mean, it's risky. I learned that the hard way. And it is the reason tax attorney Kelly Phillips Herb wrote that Forbes article about 11 reasons she never wanted to own a home again. You know, we've all been kind of coach to believe that we should buy a house. And I wasn't suggesting that you can't make money on real estate, which is what some of the folks were saying. I was saying that it's an individual decision, it's an individual choice, that there are things outside of tax and money that can impact those decisions, which is what happened to us. There were a lot of things that were going on that had nothing to do with money. We bought a house. We decided not to buy a house the second time. And it's not like that first time around was a bad experience. They owned a home in Philadelphia. And that house worked for a really long time. We stayed in the house almost 15 years. All my kids, you know, they took their first steps in that house. We loved our neighbors. I loved that I could walk down the street to, you know, our neighborhood bar, like the green, the, the community, like everything all at once, public transit. It was perfect until it wasn't. And what was suddenly no longer right? for you? Well, there were, there were a few things actually that were happening, but the most significant was my husband, his dad had gotten sick. Kelly Phillips Herb's in-laws lived about 40 minutes away. She and her husband started looking for something closer and stumbled on a farmhouse in rural Chester County, Pennsylvania. And it was beautiful. It was historic, but at the time it was not for sale. And honestly, I wouldn't have bought it. Like, what if Mr. Herb got better? What if we decided we hated it because the kids wanted to go back to the city? And because we weren't sure about what we were going to do, we did not buy a new house. We started looking at rentals. So we originally rented as a matter of convenience. Yeah. So I think a lot of people can probably relate to, you know, the, well, we need to do something temporarily while we figure things out. Renting obviously makes sense. How did yes. you get from that to... I never want to own again, <laughs> and telling the world. It actually happened really quickly. The first year we were in the house, Hurricane Sandy hit. So the farmhouse was three stories tall, and my daughter's bedroom was on the top floor. And she comes down during the hurricane, and she's like, Mom, there's a, a leak in the roof. And so I went and got a pail and initially went to, let's call the roofers. And I'm like, wait, 
we don't call the roofers. <laughs> so I said to my husband, like, what do we do? He said, just send an email to the landlord. So we sent an email to the landlord and they said, okay, we'll have someone out. And they fixed it. And I'm like, wow, like just as a working parent, <laughs> that was such a huge, like, I didn't have to take time out of my day to wait for somebody to show up at the house. Like it was just, it was my first moment of it's kind of nice having somebody else worry about those things that you worry about as a homeowner. Didn't you miss the sense of ownership though? Like I'd like to repaint this room or I'd like to plant a garden. So I'm a huge gardener, (laughs) huge. We gardened, we planted vegetables, we planted the flowers I wanted. I had my herb garden just like normal. You just got approval for that. The landlord was totally fine with all you Didn't care at all, right. And this is something that we talked about and I talked about in my article. I think people go into rentals assuming, often, assuming that you can't make a change. And that's not true. A lot of places will give you leeway to do things. We made lots and lots of changes in that space and I felt really good about it. I didn't feel like at any time it wasn't my house. How were you okay with the with the monthly pouring money into somebody else's pocket <laughs> instead of building your own equity, right? I think that's the right. thing that's a hang up for a lot of us who have you know, if I were paying down a mortgage in equity, then at least I'll have something to show for it at the end mm-hmm. whereas as a renter, I'm just Letting somebody so, else, right. the landlord, have something to show right. for. Right, and I completely get that. So there were a couple of things. One is, and this is something I stressed in my article, like I think you have to do the math. The math is different depending on your geography. You can look right now, there were some really interesting surveys coming out of California about how it's impossible to be a renter in California because of the cost of rental real estate in places like San Francisco. That was not the case in rural Pennsylvania. Where we were, First of all, rent was much cheaper than buying. Also, I do think people sometimes think that they own things when they don't. Rules are different now post-housing prices, but when we were uh, when we bought our first house, you literally could walk in and pay zero down and yeah. buy a house. But we owed a lot for a few years, and I think that people forget about that bit. For a very long time, you don't own that house, the bank does. And so all the money that you're paying, you're actually not, you're building very little equity. Very tiny. When you go to sell that house for the first few years, again, depending on the market and what's happening, but for most homeowners, you don't walk away a millionaire when you've been in a house for a couple of years um, because you're paying a lot of interest. The other thing is I didn't pay any maintenance costs and that is huge. And in fact, when we did eventually end up moving and, and buying another house, we had money saved from where we weren't constantly pouring money into projects or expenses. How could you possibly have saved money at the end of five years? You did the tally. You'd Mm -hmm. actually come out ahead as a renter. So no real estate taxes, um, no extra fees, no lawn costs. We weren't paying uh, to, to have anybody come in and, again, fix the air conditioning, fix the roof. It just, it worked out. And again, that's where I go back to, I don't want to suggest that's the case for everybody because you're right. The numbers in, you know, don't immediately feel like they would make sense for us. They did. I know they have for other people, but in our situation, it worked out for us. Yeah. And I think um, I, I am by no means the most savvy of home purchasers and sellers and I get kind of lost in all the numbers. And I suspect I'm not the only one that has sort of always heard, like, if you can own, you should own. And then that way, when the market increases, you're going to have this nice little nest egg. It'll be like free money when you leave, right? And I'm and I'm not taking into account. I mean, I have been guilty of doing that very simple thing where I say, well, I could rent for this amount in this community, or I could buy this house and have this mortgage payment, and it's the same or cheaper, so I may as well just buy without really kind of digging into all of the additional uncertainty And one of the things that you just mentioned, I just want to comment on, because I also think this gets lost, is that you mentioned when you're ready to leave, right? With homeownership in particular, unless you're going to refinance, you don't really get to take advantage of the built-in growth until you're ready to leave. For somebody like my parents, so my dad has lived in the same space for 40 years, he, he bought into rural North Carolina when nobody wanted to live there. Um, his property taxes have gone up considerably from when he first moved there. That home that he's in is probably also worth more. He doesn't benefit from that because he does not wish to downsize. <laughs> he and I have had this conversation many times. Um, 
he is probably not in his lifetime going to recognize any value from that gain. And I think a lot of homeowners are in similar situations. And yeah. I think that that's where, again, you're, you're planning for the exit. But that only works if you're actually exiting. And if you exit at the right time, what if you exit when the market goes down, the real estate market? So when people talk about building wealth, I guess, you know, is he building it for us? Maybe. Is he building it for him? No. Kelly Phillips Herb, um, you followed up with an article several years later. Yes, that one was, I said I wouldn't, but I did. I bought a house which the second one was much better received <laughs> than the first. Because um, they're like, we told you Exactly. So. But, but my, my writing the articles was to be really transparent about the idea that things change all the time. Her father-in-law had passed away, and the old farmhouse had a lot of steps that were tough for her mother-in-law to handle, so they needed something more accessible to her. They were open to renting or buying. What mattered was finding the right house. The fact that it was owned wasn't the number one consideration at all. It was the location. It was the neighborhood. Um, it was the fact that, and I joked with the owners, I walked in the door and I could kind of see Christmas. Like that was always my, did I want to stay somewhere? Could I see Christmas? I could see Christmas in the house. And again, I think that some of those intangibles to me were more important. And then we ran the numbers. We did realize that it was going to be more expensive. Um, and a hundred percent it is. Ironically, the roofers are going to be at my house tomorrow. We've had <laughs> torrential rains in the Northeast and we're paying for that. Uh, so it's, it's ironic that, you know, it all comes back to roofs, I guess. So you, you miss some of the freedom. I then, do, but, I do. Yeah. And, and, you know, I love this house. I'm glad we made the move. And if you asked me tomorrow, would I buy another house? Uh, I probably would say no. So um, my, my point is just that I, I do think that people need to think about where are they now and what works for them. Can you identify then, Kelly, the first like two or three questions as both a former financial advisor and a tax advisor now, the two or three questions someone should be asking themselves when they're trying to decide if homeownership is right for them? So what are your plans for the next five years if you don't like your job? If you don't like where you are, if the heat is really <laughs> getting to you this summer and you're like, I'm not spending another summer here, um, I don't think home ownership is the right move. I also think you should think about how much money you have to put down as a down payment. I do think home ownership tends to benefit most people who can afford to uh, pay less in debt, right? So if you can put 20% down and take out a smaller mortgage, economically, that might be a better decision for you. I would say run the numbers. One of the things that one of my good friends in Texas, um, she told me she didn't realize how much property taxes were in Texas because there was no income tax. So she thought, so like, don't forget about those kinds of things. Don't forget about the extras, homeowners, um, and uh, so HOA expenses. And then I would just say as, um, as a kind of a, a final tax thing, because being a tax person, in the 2017 the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, some people call it the tax reform law or um, the Trump cuts, boosted the standard deduction and then um, de-incentivized on some level homeownership by capping real estate taxes and capping the amount that you could borrow. Before the 2017, about a third of all taxpayers were taking itemized deductions. Now that number is about 11%. So that means even though everybody tells you you're going to save with this mortgage, only about 10% of U.S. taxpayers are actually going to benefit from any kind of tax savings at all from that mortgage. In other big purchases in our lives, we typically don't tie the tax savings to the thing. If I decided tomorrow that I wanted to go out and buy a $100,000 car, I wouldn't think to myself, am I going to get a tax deduction for this? I think to myself, do I have $100,000 to buy a car? But when it comes to houses, we think to ourselves, do I have enough money to buy this house? And how much money am I going to save in taxes that's going to offset the real estate taxes that I'm paying in the mortgage? And I'm a big proponent of not letting the tax tail wag the dog. Like you make your decision and then you figure out the tax bits. You don't make your decisions solely based on the taxes. Kelly Phillips-Erb is a Philadelphia-based tax lawyer and Forbes columnist. She's known around the web as the tax girl. These assumptions about the importance of homeownership that we take for granted aren't the case everywhere. Take Germany. All my German friends were like, oh my God, you're buying a house, like your own home. That's crazy. Like that was 
imagination land to them. That was, you know, a utopia. What is it like in a wealthy country where homeownership is not the norm? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Feli from Germany moved to the U.S. in 2016 for college. That's how she's known on YouTube, by the way. Feli from Germany. She grew up in Munich. Now she's 29 years old and lives in Cincinnati, Ohio with her boyfriend. It was one of her videos about buying a home in America that first caught our eye. When you see things here, like this typical American neighborhood that you talked about with the cul-de-sac, when I saw that for the first time, I was like, wow, they didn't just make this for the movies. This is real. And the houses are all so big. Like everyone can afford these big single family houses where you have space on the right, on the left, in the back, in the front, everywhere. You don't have your neighbors touching your walls. The house that I ended up buying here, I couldn't even afford buying a garage for that in Munich. Let it like, I couldn't even buy a one-bedroom apartment, probably not even a storage unit for the price. That's partially because German neighborhoods generally are not designed like American ones. They'll have these planned row houses or duplexes where you have like a tiny little yard where you can maybe fit um, a sandbox for your kids and a grill. And then there is a fence on the right and on the left where you can directly see your neighbors sitting there like you're literally sitting out on the terrace together. And especially in a big city like Munich or other cities like Hamburg, Frankfurt, that's luxury already. That'll cost you a lot of money to even have a little backyard like that. One big factor is space. Germany is just very densely populated, especially those big cities, and therefore the prices for space are extremely high. I don't think I have a single friend my age who owns a home or is even looking for one. If you live in a more rural area, it's definitely a lot more common. If people have like a farm or something like that, then they'll, you know, get property from their families. Um, in general, though, more than half of Germans are renters. That's the highest renter rate in all of the European Union. And compare that to the U.S., where only a third of people rent. The vast majority of us, 65%, are homeowners. Besides the space thing that Feli mentioned, Germany is the size of Montana, after all, a big reason for the difference is public policy. Where the U.S. subsidizes affordable mortgages and gives homeowners a tax cut, Germany's laws do nothing to make owning your home more affordable. It's renting that's encouraged. And renters are protected pretty well in terms of um, when they can be kicked out or can't be kicked out. Also, there's regulations on how rent can rise or like there is a cap mm. for uh, rent prices, etc. And also, rental units are usually at a pretty high standard. So renting is actually pretty well respected in Germany. I had tons of friends whose family were renters. There's lots of old people, lots of senior citizens who are renters. It's really not at all looked down upon, I would say. Which is why it was so shocking to arrive in America for college and see people her own age buying homes. I know a, a ton of people who bought their first home in their early 20s. But she got right on board with it. This mentality of, way it's actually smarter to pay off your mortgage, which might be lower, at least in this area, might be lower every month than your rent. And that's actually an investment in yourself. So like, instead of giving the money, like paying off someone else's mortgage, you're paying off your own mortgage every month. And that way you actually build wealth. And so for me, this was actually an investment idea at first. I'm very lucky that things are cheap here. Then, of course, I know that it's not the case all over the U.S., but at least in the Midwest, I feel like there's a lot of these kind of mid-sized cities where it is pretty normal and doable to buy a house. And I was actually surprised by how quick everything was. From the time that I hired or got together with my realtor and started looking at properties to the closing date, it was like maybe a month and a half. And then I kept asking all these complicated questions to my realtor. And she was like, oh, people don't usually ask all these detailed questions. And I was like, well, it's a big decision for me. I need to you know, know, know all these details and what I'm getting into. And at the closing, they didn't even read the entire contract or the, or the title or whatever. But I know that in Germany, you have to go to a notary, which costs you a lot of money for one, like hundreds of euros per hour. And you have to organize that yourself. And then they are um, obligated to read the entire thing to you word by word. So it takes hours <laughs> at the notary for that. 
in addition to that, there's lots of regulations in terms of taxes and fees. So like just buying and selling a home is more expensive or especially selling a home is more expensive as the seller than it is in the US. And there's certain regulations where you can't sell a property as fast with as much profit as you can in the US. So it's mm -hmm. not really common in Germany to just buy something for two years and then sell it and move on. Whereas in the US, I feel like it's so common to kind of move up your, your property ladder. Like you have a first time home, like your first home, and then that's not going to be your last home. Whereas in Germany, for a lot of people, if they do end up buying a house, that's going to be a commitment for life. So do you do you think one or the other system is better? I definitely prefer the American way. However, it's just like it's not possible in Germany. So that's why I'm not like mad about Germany that that's just not the, the case there. But I mean, as a home buyer, it's definitely a lot more fun in the US. Like I sometimes just browse on Zillow just for fun because I just want to see, well, is there something else? Is there something else that I want to invest in as a second property as a landlord or, you know, an upgrade in the near future? So it's definitely fun to have your own place. You can find Faley talking about all the differences between the U.S. and Germany on her YouTube channel, Faley from Germany. Maybe the biggest reason Germany is a nation of renters dates back to World War II. After the fighting stopped, 12 million Germans were left homeless or displaced. And the country's answer was a huge government subsidy program for builders to construct new housing quickly and rent it out affordably. As it happens, World War II was also a turning point for housing in the United States, but in the opposite direction. I mean, middle-class homeownership is really a product of post-World War II era policy choices that we've made. This is Jenny Schutz. She's an urban economist at the Brookings Institute who studies housing. We have a couple of different factors that are running into one another. One is that there's this huge baby boom, right? Lots of people having, having kids, having families. We have soldiers returning from service who want to settle down and have families. And the federal government decided we should really make it easy for people to buy a home, um, particularly to buy a, a newly built home in the suburbs. It was an attractive proposition, since city living at the time was crowded and unsanitary. Housing regulations around health and fire safety were weak. Plus, the U.S. had all that space outside the urban hubs. There's very much a sense that that's a neighborhood that's family-friendly. That's where you want to grow in order to have kids and have your, your individual space. So the federal government spent a lot of time and energy thinking about ways to expand access to homeownership through a couple of policies. One of them is this creation of the, the modern mortgage markets, that you can get a 30-year mortgage at a fixed interest rate that doesn't change over time at a relatively low interest rate. That's because we have created things like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So these are private corporations created by the federal government to buy and guarantee mortgages made by banks so banks have the cash and confidence to make more loans. Also, we have rules around the kinds of mortgages that can be issued. Uh, you can write off the interest paid on your mortgage on your federal taxes, and you don't have to pay capital gains on your house. And all of those make it cheaper to borrow money and build a house than to borrow money, say, on your credit card or to buy a car. Um, we've made it preferred to buy a house rather than putting your money into other kinds of assets, like into the stock market and to bonds. So these and are was it just a, a coincidence that all of this made it so that when you own your own home, you're also building wealth? Yeah, I mean, the, the government has an incentive in helping people save money because everybody is going to need savings at some point in their life. So if you lose your job or you have a health emergency or a natural disaster of some kind, you really need to have a pot of savings that you can tap into to pay for these kinds of things. So the government would rather that we have some kind of savings, and this is one of the ways that they can encourage that. You're going to pay for housing costs every month, whether it's rent to the landlord or the mortgage to the bank. And so why not use that to encourage people to be setting aside some of their money for savings? So by choosing to emphasize and incentivize home ownership, what did U.S. policy not choose to do? We chose not to make renting a preferred tenure choice. So we're essentially, essentially sending messages to people, you're going to rent as a young household, 
but only until you can afford to become a homeowner. So the goal is to save up money for a down payment, to get a better paying job so that you earn more money, to make sure that your credit uh, score is okay. But as quickly as possible, we want people to transition to becoming homeowners. And this is sending the message that renting is not a good long-term option. We don't, for instance, provide very good tenant protections in a lot of places. We provide all sorts of incentives for home ownership through the federal tax code. So we're leaning in a couple of different dimensions from mortgage markets to federal in federal tax policy, telling people renting is a temporary state and that you should get out of it as quickly as possible. With, of course, the caveat that this was really intended for white home buyers, um, that this was not equitably set up for, uh, particularly for African Americans at the time. The private housing market and federal policies excluded Black and Latino households from buying homes and therefore getting access to this wealth building mechanism. A mechanism, remember, the U.S. government created to help people get into homes and keep them. And it worked. Shortly after World War II, the rate of homeownership in America hit a new high and never look back. Now, it's true that in individual cases, it might not always be best, but generally, buying a home is still an incredibly important way to cultivate wealth, especially for middle-class Americans. Discrimination was baked into the system, though, and that was a policy choice, too. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. To understand how people of color were left out of the vast wealth-building engine that created America's middle class, let's look at one family's story. So in 1963, my parents migrated to the North from the South. This is Lisa Rice. She's president and CEO of the National Fair Housing Alliance. And they moved North because in the South, opportunities for Black people was just extremely limited. Now, that's not to make it seem like the North was nirvana or some utopia, but opportunities were indeed better. So my dad was able to get um, a pretty good job. In fact, he had two jobs. He owned a store and he worked in the construction industry. My mom had been a nurse, but she decided to stay home when she uh, got pregnant uh, with me. And uh, when she got pregnant with me, she told my dad that they needed to stop renting and buy a house. She wanted to have stability. She wanted a backyard where her children could play and she could feel safe. She wanted the benefits that homeownership brought in terms of wealth building. Rice's mom found a place in a city in northern Ohio that checked all the boxes. The nice neighborhood, a strong community, and most importantly, good educational opportunities for her kids. It's a suburb of Toledo, Ohio, called Sylvania, Ohio. And uh, my mom met with a real estate agent who promptly told her that she could not show my mother the home that she wanted to buy because we were black. She said to my mom, it's not me. It's not me. You seem like a very nice person. You seem like a very nice family. But she did tell my mom if she showed my mom that home in Sylvania, that she would lose her license and lose her job. And she was not lying. Uh, At that particular time in our nation, the National Association of Realtors required that all of its members promote residential segregation. Real estate agents were not supposed to show black people homes in predominantly white neighborhoods and white people homes in black neighborhoods, except for when a neighborhood was quote unquote changing. That's exactly where the realtor sent Rice's family instead. To a neighborhood called Parkside Extensions in Toledo, Ohio. This was the community where the real estate industry had decided, the city had decided, you know, as more and more black people are moving up from the South, this is where we're gonna put them. 
So my my dad went to his bank where he had his savings account and asked for a mortgage. And the manager told him, no, I can't give you a loan. I can't give you a mortgage loan to buy that house because it's in, he told my dad it's in a changing neighborhood. He told my dad that below a certain line, below Upton Avenue, the bank couldn't make any loans. The bank based that decision off of maps that showed where the U.S. government would back affordable mortgage loans and where it wouldn't. The Federal Housing Administration offered the FHA mortgage, that people know that name today, FHA. It was an affordable mortgage. It offered a fully amortizing mortgage, meaning you're going to pay one flat rate (laughs) for the remainder of the loan. And so the FHA product is really how the the suburbs in America (laughs) were built. The only thing is that uh, people of color were not able to access that uh, FHA product. In fact, the FHA's underwriting guidelines mandated segregation. The government would not guarantee home loans in mixed-race neighborhoods. So mainstream banks and credit unions steered clear. But even when people of color, like Lisa Rice's family, tried to buy a home in a segregated neighborhood, they'd be denied an affordable loan because those neighborhoods were considered too risky. Community housing maps created by the U.S. government were color-coded for easy reference. Green being the best, blue being the next best, yellow being sort of cautionary, and red was hazardous. So every residential security survey map that I have ever seen, if there were any black people in a neighborhood, it got the hazardous grade. This is a hazardous neighborhood, thus the color red, hence the term redlining. So my mom and dad actually had to go to a subprime lender to get a mortgage. And they paid almost a 14% interest rate. So they paid double the interest rate that they should have paid to get a loan. It wasn't because they had bad credit. My dad had excellent credit. Um, But it was because of the racial composition of the neighborhood. And when we moved into that neighborhood, it was probably 99% white. And that was in 1963. By the time I started kindergarten in 1968, just five years later, it was 99% black. And it's interesting, the more black people started moving into the neighborhood, my my mom and dad said, you know, the banks left, (laughs) the grocery stores left, the businesses left. So it became a heavily disinvested and redlined area as more black people moved into the community. Our family's experience is not unique by any stretch of the imagination. And so what effect did that have on your family, on on your opportunities and, and on what your parents were able to accomplish or achieve in their lives? Well, it had profound impact, right? Because the primary way that we build wealth in America is through home ownership and the equity that you build in your home. And because of this inculcation of the association between race and risk, we still see the vestiges of that today. I mean, it's stuck with us. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Brookings, there are a number of entities that have done research around the value of homes. And what researchers have found is that homes in predominantly black communities are undervalued to the tune of about 23%. On average, that that equates to $162 billion in lost wealth for those families. And certainly our family <laughs> saw that loss of wealth, right? When, when my mom ultimately sold her house in Toledo, Ohio, it was worth about 20% of what that home she wanted to buy in Sylvania uh, was worth. 20%, that's a lot of lost wealth and equity, but just the change in value over time because one neighborhood became predominantly black and then undervalued and the other neighborhood stayed predominantly white and therefore um, appreciated in value on a regular basis, just the differences in wealth were profound. And that wealth gap persists. 
The typical white family in America today has nearly eight times as much wealth as the typical black family. Homes are still a big part of that. After Congress outlawed redlining and other forms of explicit housing discrimination with the Fair Housing Act of 1968, black homeownership increased, but it never closed the gap. And then the foreclosure crisis of 2008 erased most of those gains. Since even then, Black homeowners were more likely to be saddled with subprime mortgages, says Rice. The Fair Housing Act did not really do anything to eliminate the systemic barriers that were put in place uh, because of hundreds of years of race-conscious, race-based laws like the ones that I explained earlier, right? We're still segregated, highly segregated. We're more segregated today than we were 100 years ago because of these race-based laws. Uh, We still have the dual credit market in the United States. So we have a mainstream market made up of the banks and the credit unions. And then we have like a subprime market or a fringe market made up of payday lenders and check cashers, right? But where those financial services providers are located is very much dictated by the racial compositions of our neighborhoods. So banks and credit unions are hyper-concentrated in predominantly white neighborhoods and payday lenders and check cashers and so forth uh, are highly concentrated in communities of color. Here's what that means for a typical first-time home buyer in America today. So first of all, the average white person in America is coming to the table with a lot more wealth, familial wealth, inherited wealth, or borrowed wealth. So the typical white person is going to get support from uh, their parents who can help them with a down payment. Maybe in large part because they were able to purchase a home that had value that increased significantly over their lifetime. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, The typical black person is not coming to the table with any wealth. Uh, The typical a black person is coming to the table with a lot more student loan debt because of that wealth divide, because of the wealth gap, which is, as you've stated, Julie, really tied into the gap in home ownership, right, and the gap in home equity, which means that the typical white person is going to better be able to access home ownership opportunities and to sustain those home ownership opportunities. So it's a very different scenario. And so how? what are some of the solutions that you think could help make homeownership more accessible and affordable to borrowers of color in America? How do we fix this? So one of the first things that we have to do is increase uh, down payment assistance for borrowers of color. And we have a couple of programs that we are um have have sort of generated at the National Fair Housing Alliance. One is a first-generation down payment assistance uh, program. So this program offers down payment assistance to people who are the first in their generation to own a home. The second is via what is called special purpose credit programs. So these programs are designed to make it easier for underserved groups to access financing, groups like African Americans or Native Americans. And it might look like lowering loan qualifications or offering better terms than would normally be available. The idea is to give these groups equal access to the credit and loan systems they've historically been blocked from. The National Fair Housing Alliance is also concerned about the role of artificial intelligence in all of this. These days, much of the work of figuring out who qualifies for what loan is automated. And because people of color were blocked from mainstream markets for so many decades, the data training these algorithms doesn't include home purchases made by people of color risk-based pricing systems, automated underwriting systems, credit scoring systems, because they're built using underrepresentative data sets, they're yielding discriminatory outcomes against people of color. Uh, Technology is the new civil rights frontier. And so that's one of the reasons why at the National Fair Housing Alliance, we have stood up our tech equity division to develop 
AI systems, algorithmic-based systems that are fair and equitable from the beginning. Do you think moving forward that it still makes sense that we should still be incentivizing with FHA loans and with uh, you know, mortgage interest deduction and those kinds of things? Or should we buy into a different way of building wealth in America? Well, no, absolutely. I mean, and now, indeed, there are different ways of building wealth, and we need to make sure that all of those paths are fair and equitable. But we certainly cannot, at this juncture, say, ah, you know what, we're not going to worry about supporting home ownership, particularly for underserved groups, because, well, we just don't want to do that as a public policy uh, a priority anymore. That would exacerbate the wealth gaps even further. So the federal government absolutely has to continue to support homeownership opportunities just as it has since our genesis, but it has to make sure that it is doing so in a more equitable fashion. Lisa Rice is the president and CEO of the National Fair Housing Alliance, an organization dedicated to ending housing discrimination. Now, anybody who has tried to buy a house in the last few years knows that it isn't getting a loan that's the hardest part. It's finding a house to buy in the first place. We've just made it too hard to live in many of the nicest places in the U.S. This is Jenny Schutz again, the housing economist at Brookings. Her new book is Fixer Upper, How to Restore America's Broken Housing System. If you make it easier for more people to buy homes but don't increase the number of homes available, then you just have more people chasing after homes and it's going to drive up prices. And so just expanding you know, income or access to down payment assistance isn't going to do it. Over the past decade since the Great Recession, the U.S. hasn't built enough homes to keep up with the demand created by population growth and job growth, particularly in the places that people most want to live, the cities and metro areas with the strongest job markets, neighborhoods that have great public schools where people really want to live and have access to community community amenities. Predictably, that's resulted in higher housing costs than we need to have. More and more households are struggling to pay the rent or the mortgage. And of course, if you're having a hard time just paying the rent every month, it becomes harder and harder to save up money if you want to make a down payment and buy a home at some point. So we've built a whole set of policies around restricting development of housing, and that's locked a lot of households out of not just access to homeownership and wealth building, but also just access to great neighborhoods, access to local job markets and transportation, places with good public schools and parks and healthy environments. And get this, the reason we are in this bind where people are desperate to buy homes in great neighborhoods and they can't is precisely because home ownership is such an important way to build wealth in America. Think about it. If most of your wealth, your assets are tied up in this particular piece of property, you become very protective of anything that might cause your property values to go down or even just to rise less quickly. Um, so one of the classic examples is people, uh, you know, somebody will propose to build, say, an apartment building, maybe even a subsidized apartment building in a neighborhood full of single family homes. And the homeowners get worried that this is going to cause their property values to drop. So they show up at a community meeting and say, you can't possibly build this. This is going to bring in the wrong type of person. Uh, this is going to drive down our property values. And the result of that is that we're not building enough homes. We're particularly not building enough moderately priced homes in many of these very affluent and high opportunity communities. Are homeowners wrong about that, though? I mean, won't it drive down their property values and or uh, create traffic on the roads, create parking issues, maybe overburden the local school? I mean, there are consequences to more density, right? So they're not they're not crazy about that. They're not crazy about all of it, uh, but they're often exaggerating the extent of the problem. Um, so parking and congestion are probably the two clearest ones. If you add you know, a 200-unit apartment building to a neighborhood, yes, there will be more people living there. There will be more people driving and parking on the street. Um, it's not actually clear what the impact is on property values. Uh, so very often, the, the new housing that gets added looks pretty much like the housing that's there. Um, and the evidence suggests that most of the time, adding new, higher-density housing to a single-family neighborhood has minimal, if any, impact on property values. Why is it that homeowners have so much control, though, or so much power in, in these local zoning decisions? I mean, developers and, and renters can also show up to those meetings and, and make their voices heard, right? 
They can. Uh, in a lot of communities, homeowners are the majority. So about two-thirds of Americans own their own home. In suburban communities, the majority of people who live there own their homes. But interestingly, even in big cities that are majority renters, the elected officials are more likely to be homeowners, and homeowners are much more likely to show up at community meetings and make their voices known. They also tend to be older, they're more affluent. Renter households tend to be young, they may be new to the community, they may not know how the political system works or feel that invested. Um, but we see this really strong pattern that homeowners are more likely to show up and they're more likely to be listened to, that elected officials are very attuned to what their homeowner constituents are complaining about. What does that result in? What are the types of zoning policy decisions that we tend to see getting made? Yeah, zoning overwhelmingly favors single-family detached houses over any other structure type. The majority of land, even in cities, is set aside for single-family homes only. So it's illegal to build things like townhouses and duplexes, let alone apartment buildings. And a lot of our high-opportunity communities, there isn't open space left over. The only way you add housing is by tearing down an existing home and replacing it with something that's denser, with something that's taller. And you're not allowed to do that under zoning. And the result of that is that we're not building enough homes. The homes we do build are more expensive because they're larger and use more land. They are more likely to be uh, intended for owner occupancy rather than for renters. So we lock renter households out of a lot of the highest opportunity communities. And we're seeing at the aggregate that a lot of uh, the expensive regions are now losing people altogether because not enough people can afford to live there. So won't that just self-correct at some point then? Like, why is the market not going to ultimately fix this for us? Well, the market can't build the kind of housing that it wants to because policies like zoning get in the way. The market would love to go into... You know, expensive places like Greenwich, Connecticut, which has two-acre minimum lot sizes and only single-family homes, you could buy up one house on two acres of land and build a bunch of townhouses. Developers would love to do this. They could make a bunch of money, and there are a bunch of people who would love to live in those townhouses, but the rules and the political process with existing homeowners prevents that from happening. You know, it's a, it's a question of whether some of the really expensive metros are going to get to a breaking point, either economically or politically, um, because many of them have been, have been losing population and are just becoming richer and older and smaller. That's not incredibly sustainable. If you're a homeowner in Greenwich and you can no longer go to the nearby Starbucks and get a coffee because they can't hire any baristas, at some point it should start to occur to you that the fact that nobody can live nearby is a problem for labor markets. And at some point, even the higher wage workers have a hard time living there. Companies have a harder time hiring and retaining good workers in these really expensive regions. The other thing that often resonates is you'll hear older homeowners complain, my kid can't move back and buy a starter home in the neighborhood they grew up in. It's like, yeah, because you won't let them build starter homes in the neighborhood. And your kid probably can't afford to buy a $2 million house when they're in their mid-20s. So is this... Are homeowners just going to have to give up some property value and some of their, you know, quiet streetness? <laughs> Is there, do homeowners automatically have to lose something in order to right this ship? Yeah, so I should say that not all homeowners, even in affluent neighborhoods, are adamantly opposed to building more apartments and more townhouses. A lot of homeowners understand that the current system isn't sustainable. It's not working. It's not working for their kids. It's not working for workers, for their younger co-workers. Um, and so there seems to be more political support for this. Um, but at some point, we probably are going to have to take away power from some of the really obstructionist homeowners but it's not clear that that's actually going to make the, the average person living in the neighborhood that unhappy or have financial consequences for them. Do we need to then no longer make home, home ownership the, the, the best way to build wealth in this country? So there are a lot of arguments for helping people build wealth outside of homeownership, even if we still want people to become homeowners. One of the questions is whether we could recreate things like a forced savings mechanism outside of homeownership to allow people to build wealth through other mechanisms. So we really want to encourage not just saving in your home equity, but having some cash savings as well. The easiest option is probably to run that through employers the same way we do with health insurance and with retirement programs. So imagine 
imagine that you start a new job and you get to sign up for all these things. And in addition to saying, I want to put 10% of my salary every paycheck into a 401k, I also want to put, say, 5 to 10% of my salary into kind of a medium-term savings account. And, you know, you could make that voluntary so people choose to do that. Or you could automatically enroll them and they have to go to HR in order to unenroll. But that would be one option to help people. And you could do that for both renters and for homeowners. And then they would just have this account that would go with them. Also, at this point, we probably do have to push back against the narrative that homeownership should be the goal for everyone and that renting is a second-class status. Because that's a, that's a very deeply held belief by a lot of people and that's driving a lot of people's choices. We could just take our our finger off of the scale and make it a level playing field between owners and renters. We actually went some direction towards that with the Tax Cuts and Job, Jobs Act of 2017. The standard, standard deduction that people take on their taxes was doubled. So most homeowners at this point don't deduct their interest from their federal income taxes. Most people take the standard deduction. I actually think that's a great idea because then renters and homeowners who have the same income are treated equitably under the federal tax code. So we could do some things like that that most people probably wouldn't even notice, but that make it less of a subsidy to own rather than rent. I mean, the goal should be that everybody can live in decent quality housing that's affordable within their budget. People should have a decent place to live in a decent neighborhood. And whether you own or rent, that really should be up to the household. You know, lots of people don't want to live in the community they're choosing for the next 30 years. We should give people flexibility. And, you know, some people want to build wealth through ownership. Some people would rather build wealth through a diversified stock portfolio. That should really be up to individuals. And right now, I mean, it is up to individuals, or is it, it not? Is. It is, but with some really heavy subsidies leaning on the side of homeownership versus diversified portfolios. And in particular, that we still have these very high barriers to homeownership for Black and Latino households, for younger households, for renter households. We have made it an un inequitable system based on your parents' and your grandparents' wealth. And that seems to me fundamentally un-American. Jenny Schutz is an urban economist and a housing policy expert at Brookings Metro. Her book is Fixer Upper, How to Repair America's Broken Housing System. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops and Abigail Tolley with help from Samuel Benson and me. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis and Spencer Hewitt. And we're on social media. We'd love to have you follow us for updates, behind the scenes, and tips on how to engage with tough topics. You can find us at Top of Mind Pod, wherever you do social media. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. 